For years now, volunteers from this congregation have served as reading tutors at Parkview Elementary School. From the very beginning of this church plant, um, we've been trying to pray and talk to people and discover what are some of the real needs in our own backyard. And uh, what we found out was that if students don't learn to read to grade level by fourth grade, they're less than half likely to graduate high school, which of course, sets them up for uh, a lot fewer opportunities in life. So we asked local teachers, okay, well, how, how can we help this issue? P teachers at Parkview Elementary, and they said, well, read with kids. Okay, well, we can do that. So uh, numbers of volunteers have been in the school over the past few years, and um, this is my fourth year of working with some of the most delightful students in the world, I would say. Um, and my task is simple. Let the kids know that they're valued, help them to read more fluently, and help them remember what they read. I mean, it's not rocket science. Um, so I've been working with one student who has been making real strides this year, and English is her second language, so there's some barrier, but she's doing awesome. But lately, she's been really struggling with some of her tests, and I, I just can't get it because she's, she's getting more and more fluent. And so what I realize is she's reading more fluently, but she's not remembering a thing that she's been reading. So we'll be reading a story, right? We'll get halfway through a book, and I'll just pause and say, so tell me what's, what's the main character's name? Blank stare. I, I she doesn't know what the characters are wearing, what they've been doing. It's almost like she's been decoding the words, just figuring out, okay, what is the English sound that these letters make, and decoding the words, but not understanding at all the bigger story that's going on. And I think that that's exactly how we live life from time to time. We get on the treadmill of the day-to-day, -day, the work or the school or whatever it is that you do, and we wake up one morning and say, how did I get here? Where did the week go? Where did the month go? Where have the years gone? You might be breathing and have a pulse, but are you really alive if you don't know the context that you're living in? Are you really reading if you can't remember the story? So in his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, I think, recognizes just how easy it is as people to forget, to lose perspective, to lose our grip on what is actually real. So he begins his letter by reminding us who we are as the church, God's representatives in Jesus. He wants us to remember that we are adopted children that we are part of his family, that we're precious to God. In fact, twice in the beginning of Ephesians, uh, Paul tells us that we are God's inheritance. Paul wants us to remember that we were chosen before the foundations of the earth, that we've been redeemed through the blood of Jesus, forgiven, sealed with the Holy Spirit. And then Paul gets very blunt as he begins chapter 2. He says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked. Slaves to the desires of your flesh. And he calls us children of wrath. But then God intervened and in great love and with great power rescued us. Rescued us. And by sheer grace, through faith, we're made alive together with Christ. We are saved. We have been saved. We are saved. We will be saved. And not saved like, like preserves on a shelf. Unless they're Morgan's preserves, then they don't stay on the shelf long because my kids eat it up really fast. But not saved for like some future time, but saved for something right now. In fact, through faith in Jesus, what we talked about last week is that we're actually recreated for good work. 
good work that God prepared in advance for us to walk in. We are created to be living, breathing representatives of God who creatively reflect His love and His beauty and His justice and His mercy to the world. That is a life worth living. And so it's with all this context, with all of this good news in mind, that Paul now switches gears into this next section. And I'm going to ask you to stand as we read Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is chapter 2. And we're going to pick it up in uh, the 11th verse and go to verse 16. In light of all that stuff that Paul has taught us thus far, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who broke down, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two groups into one new person, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Lord, help us to receive this good news. Help us to remember well where we have come from, how you rescued us, and the new life that you're allowing us to live. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul begins this next line of thought, of course, with the word therefore. He, he's reaching back to all of the things he said before this time. And what he's about to say is built on the assumption of everything he said thus far. Another way of putting it then would be because. Because you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Remember how chapter 1 starts out. Because you have been chosen, because you've been adopted, because you've been forgiven, because you were dead in your transgressions, because God intervened to save you, because all of this is by God's grace alone, not because of any quality you or I possess. Because of all of that good news, remember. Remember. Remember who you were. Remember who you are and what Jesus has done for you. An interesting little detail. The word remember is an imperative. It's a command. It's something that Paul is telling us to do. And it's the only command that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. The only command. Paul starts off half of his letter just going off about Jesus and what he's done for us. And the only command he gives us in the first three whole chapters, that's half the book, is that we just remember. That we remember what God has done. Like that little girl I've been tutoring, it's easy for us to get this far into the letter, this far into life, and have no recollection of what's gone on before. 
For several weeks now, we've been stopping every other paragraph to discuss the story, me and this little girl. Uh, And at first it was amazing. So we would read like three sentences, and then I'll say, okay, tell me what happened. Blank stare. Like, seriously? Like, we we, we just read that one. (laughs) But then she gets to get the hang of it. And I see the light bulb go on, and her eyes light up. I think for the first time in these last three weeks... This precious little girl is actually reading a story and not just decoding words. And she's actually enjoying a plot and laughing at some of the, some of the stuff going on. At first I thought it was maybe a cultural barrier that she didn't think it was funny. Um, you know, we're reading, you know, little things like, um, oh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid and stuff. I'm sitting there laughing. I'm like, you don't, you don't think that's funny? That's pretty, maybe I'm just a dork. No, I know I'm a dork, but, um, but the point is now she's like starting to laugh with the story and get into the story, and it's so fun. See, Paul wants us to do more than just get through life, than just to decode day after day after day, to just live for a paycheck or, or whatever it is that we do. Jesus didn't give his life and raise from the dead so we could just muddle our way through life. We're called to remember so we can appreciate the life that we have. So what is it that Paul tells the Ephesians to remember? Well, he wants them to remember where they've come from, to remember where they were exactly when Jesus rescued them. In our culture, you hear about this remembering where you're from quite a bit, probably mostly, at least in my world, in sports. Uh, in, in very few arenas in our American culture can you come from the street or come from nothing and without much social capital or financial capital get a lot of money. But sports is one of those avenues for the lucky few, the lucky 1% or 2% who have enough athletic ability and you can actually come right off the street and, and make it big time, make millions of dollars. And, and what, some of, what some people do is they go back to their neighborhood and maybe they start a foundation or they uh, coach at the local high school or something like that. They give back. They remember their roots, where they're from. Paul wants the Ephesians to remember their roots. Ephesus was in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. And when Paul was writing, which is around 62 AD, the people there spoke Greek and Latin, kind of a mixed culture. uh, And they were under Roman rule. They were not Jewish, is the point. So Jewish people who converted to Christianity were calling these Ephesian Christians those uncircumcised. And they were kind of doing it to poke fun at them. Uh, These people, these these Greek Christians, were coming in from the outside of the story. Whereas the Jewish believers saw themselves as having the inside track since they were part of God's people from the very beginning and they had the mark of circumcision to prove it. So Paul makes the point that in Christ, there's, it's no longer uh, an important distinction between Jew and Greek. In Christ, we are a new creation. In a way, it's kind of like having kids, so... You know, if Sophia comes over and tattles on Stella for not cleaning up her share of the room. And so, Stella, you need to finish cleaning up your side of the room. And I look out the corner of my eye and see Sophia smirking like older sisters do. Got that one. But then the smirk disappears when I say, nobody likes a tattletale, right? And, and, and that's kind of what's going on in the scriptures. So uh, the, the Jewish Christians have been pointing fingers at the Greek ones saying, oh, they're the uncircumcision. Well, Paul is saying... Oh yeah? Well, you're the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. And the smirk disappears. 
Now that may not seem like much of a statement when Paul points back to the Jews and said, oh yeah, the circumcision, big deal, performed in the flesh by human hands. But Paul is calling us to remember well. And if we remember the larger story well, there's another part in Scripture where somebody creates something in in the flesh in human hands. Idols. Throughout much of the prophetic literature, Paul or uh, the, the prophets are getting at the at the Jewish people of God, saying, "You are creating these idols with your hands. They have eyes they don't see. They have ears they don't hear." Paul's reminding the Jewish people that mere birth into a nation is not something to idolize. What makes you God's people is not your heritage or your DNA or your lack of a certain piece of skin. God makes you God's people. God makes you God's people. But certainly, being one of God's people of Israel has its advantages. They had the scriptures. They had the history of God working in their lives. They had the promises of God that He would save them and would save the world through them. And Paul reminds the Gentile hearers of their predicament before Jesus rescued them. A predicament that... We are all in without Jesus. And he reminds them of five things. First of all, that they were without Jesus at all. The the promise of the Messiah was part of the Jewish story. So all of these Gentiles who weren't part of that, uh, that movement, part of that people, they didn't even know to expect a Jesus. So they're without Jesus. Second, they were excluded from the people of Israel, from that nation, from that movement. God chose Israel to be a beacon of light to the nations that all would come to know Him through them, that they would be a beacon of hope and light. It was a privilege to be part of that people, to be chosen by God. And the Gentiles, plainly, weren't part of it. Third, they were not part of the promises of Abraham and and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah and others. Promises of the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. Fourth, Paul says that we Gentiles were without hope. There's no legitimate rescue outside of God. And as we mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, it was a common Ephesian epitaph on your, on your gravestone that said, I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care. Utter hopelessness. And that was uh, common. Archaeologists have found many of these types of grave uh, engravings. So think of what a hopeless state of living that is. Fifth, they were without God. In the Greek, they were atheoi, which we get atheist from that. The Ephesians were not atheists in that they didn't believe in God. In fact, they believed in lots and lots of gods. The point was that they didn't follow the one true God. And just an aside, little remarks like this that Paul makes prevents us from having really vague views of God. I think it's popular in us, in our cultures, here in Bellingham or on the left coast or whatever you want to call it, to kind of, ah, all gods are the same, you do what you want to do, we'll do what we want to do. Uh, but generally, people that believe that all gods are the same really have no allegiance to any one god. Uh, because if you really look at the teachings, they're quite different. But that's a topic for a different time, perhaps over dinner. Uh, I digress. But what Paul wants the Gentiles to remember, and that means us too, is that before Jesus rescued us, we were on the outside looking in. Or rather, we're on the outside oblivious that there was an in in the first place. We were so lost, we didn't know we were lost until Jesus reached out. 
Which brings us to the second big but of the chapter. But now, in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You and I were completely lost as Gentiles. God chose the nation of Israel to reflect His glory so that Gentiles like us would come to know Him. But both groups were lost. Us, because we were outside and ignorant. Israel, because they failed at their mission and kept selling their birthright to follow idols. But in Christ, both groups have been brought together. Paul continues about what Jesus is saying. He says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Now, a lot of words there. As much as there is talk about Jews and Gentiles and their separation and being one, this text is all about Jesus. Jesus and how he sacrificed everything to bring peace. And I've said it over and over again, but when we read peace here in our New Testament, it's the Greek word erene, it's most likely uh, translating the Hebrew word shalom. And this is, the shalom It's not the kind of inner peace that, you know, where we just stare at our bellies and hum and, and just have our own little private peace. It's not like a simple lack of activity where your kids finally go to sleep and they don't need a drink of water and they don't need the toilet for drinking too much water. You actually have a, a breather. It's not just that kind of peace. That's not what shalom is talking about. Shalom is, is active and, and it's all-encompassing. It's aimed at the whole community, not just at individuals. So people in the first century couldn't conceive of of having shalom if, for example, they had a roof over their heads and had plenty of food and basic harmony in their home, but they knew their neighbor didn't have those things. Shalom is about the community being in harmony, the community being blessed. This kind of peace... This kind of shalom, it's it's not accomplished through disengagement. It's not accomplished by us just keeping to ourselves. Shalom is very costly. It involves compromise, reconciliation, swallowing pride. It means listening oftentimes more than talking. Shalom is the kind of peace the prophets spoke about that would one day come with the Messiah. In Isaiah 9, we often read that around Advent, right? Uh, The prophets promise a deliverer, a child, who will be called, what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Shalom. Prince of Peace. Right? And then, when Jesus is finally born in Bethlehem, and the angels come to announce this good news to the shepherds, what do they say? Glory to God in the heavens, and Shalom, peace on earth, and goodwill toward people. Jesus is the one who brings this shalom. Shalom is so costly, and you and I are so far from it, that the God of the universe had to secure it by becoming flesh, dwelling among us, and giving his life for us. Jesus became flesh, became a human. Theologians like to call that incarnation. This means in the meat. God became flesh that we would become more like Him. He became flesh and redeemed us by living and dying and rising again to new life. Now, 
Paul speaks about what was accomplished on that cross in a few different ways, in many different ways. But in this line of thought, in the text that we're in this evening, he says that Jesus broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What is he talking about? What is this barrier of the dividing wall? Well, I think this statement, the dividing wall, and Jesus breaking it down has multiple meanings, as oftentimes things do. Uh, On the surface, it's, it's probably referring to the temple. In the first century, Judaism, the temple was a very segregated place. There was a court for the Jewish women that was separated from everything else. And further further in and closer to the holy place was the court for the Jewish men. And then the extra super special holy Jewish men could be in the holy place. And at the very center, in the holy of holies, the high priest could go in once a year to make atonement for the rest of the community. But outside of these courts and beneath many, many steps down, just so that they had to look up at everything else that was going on, was the court of the Gentiles. One ancient inscription archaeologists have found uh, reads, No foreigner is to enter within the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for the death that follows him. Right? So sure, you can be a Gentile convert to Judaism, you just (laughs) kind of stay in your place. Stay down in the pit. Paul may be referring to Christ breaking down the barriers that people raise in their access to God. After all, remember the scripture that Ian read? Well, Paul got put into prison because of that stuff that was going on. He tried to bring, he got accused, actually, he got accused of bringing this Ephesian Gentile in named Trophimus. And he got arrested for it. And he's probably writing from prison because of that arrest. He's probably writing this letter. So we see that connection of, of uh, Jesus breaking down these, these walls. But there's another allusion to this barrier that Jesus broke down. And the clue is in the command to remember. Just before Paul tells us to remember, he spoke of us being created for good works that God prepared in advance. And I talked a lot last week about that word created, how there's definitely Genesis imagery going on there. And how we were created in God's image for good works, to steward the earth, to reflect his, God's goodness and character to one another and to the created order. But when people rebelled and thought they could live better on their own than in obedience to God, some relationships were broken. Walls were built. Enmity spouted up between people. So we start to distrust each other. And a wall was, was put up between us and, and one another, and us and God, and us and creation. And I would argue us and ourselves. It's very difficult, isn't it, for us to really receive love at a pure level without thinking there are strings attached. Paul is saying that Jesus broke down those dividing walls. And now we are free to be in healthy relationship with God. And when we know in our hearts that we are God's, beloved, His inheritance, His children, that are worth so much that He died for, it frees us up to love one another. It frees us to take the risks of being taken advantage of, of maybe looking stupid, of maybe feeling uncomfortable around people we're not comfortable with. It frees us up to love. 
Whatever this fall, this sin, this rebellion, or this fear, or this pride, or this insecurity, or anger, or nationalism, or all of it, whatever that wall is built up about, it was destroyed by the hero of the story. Jesus the Christ, the hero of the world. Because Jesus broke down these walls that separate us, we are no longer Jews and Gentiles, but we're the church, the people of God. Some people have used the expression, the third race. I don't know if I like that or not. But anyway, uh, we're something new, not just an amalgam of two different separate things. And Paul seems to think that this is so important, this is part of his gospel, his good news, that we are saved by grace in Christ, who gave himself to break down these walls that separate us. And Paul wants us to remember the low state from which we've come, so that we don't get arrogant. He wants us to remember that all of this is only possible by God's grace, not by any quality that we possess. And most of all, he wants us to remember well that we are a new people only because of Jesus. You know, when we remember this stuff, or who we actually are, where we actually come from, what it cost to rescue us, I, I don't think it can help but to humble us a bit, right? And it kind of brings down the walls that we might build up. You know, we have no leg to stand on on our own if we want to somehow claim that we're superior to other people. The implications of the wall being broken down are like way too many for me to, to go on about here. I almost feel like if I were to give us a list of stuff we should do, it would limit us because this is unlimit, unlimited application here. But I will say this. We can start with the walls in our own life. I... If we really think about it, I think we're all guilty of building up walls, whether it be against God or against other people, to kind of protect ourselves. Of hedging ourselves in so that we're a little more insulated, hanging out with people that look like us and think like us and act like us. And know some of you might be saying, no, I'm pretty multicultural. I've got a friend who's different than me. Or I kind of hang with that crowd. Well, whatever it is, whatever your walls look like, because we all have them, how, what would it look like to take one step further and breaking it down. What would it look like for you, since we're all at different places in this journey, what would it look like for you and I to reach out beyond whatever our wall is this week? Start with God. In Christ, there is no longer a barrier between you and God. It's been shattered and broken down. But if you're like me, for some reason, I struggle with my intimacy with God. Sure, I have... Great seasons of prayer, and I feel like really tight with, with the big guy. But there are a lot of seasons. This is hard. It's hard work. It's hard work to, to feel like I want to be in prayer. To live in God's Word. So that wall has been taken away. So that's me putting up a wall. And I've recognized in myself a little fear of intimacy there. If I really get tight with God, I know He's peering into me. All right? So what would it look like for you to take one step toward God this week? Listening to Him. Soaking in His Word. Waiting on Him. And then maybe we could consider how we could lay down our walls between people, each other. What would it look like to make the effort 
to talk to one person this week who's different than you. One person who you might just walk by, shrug off, or ignore. Someone that might make you feel a little uncomfortable. Maybe that person is in this congregation. Maybe at work. Maybe it's a family member. Remember, Christ didn't just die for us to be stuck on a shelf kind of waiting for something to happen. He reconciled us to God and broke down walls between each other so that we can now walk in that ministry of reconciliation. And if it seems like hard, you have to struggle. But remember how Paul is framing all of this. He thinks that this is awesome, good news. He thinks that this is one of the major reasons that Christ came and died and rose for this new kind of life. I'm going to put a pause on that message. And I want us to go into our time of prayers for healing. And, and so here's how this works. We believe that God is real and answers prayer and loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And so we want to offer this space, this time. There will be two kneeling benches up here. And you can come up and uh, ask for prayer about anything. And if you're uncomfortable doing that, that's fine. Use the space in, in your seat or maybe pray with someone next to you or pray with yourself. And maybe you want to receive more God. Like say, you know, God, I have built up these walls. Maybe what does it look like for you to explore in prayer that wall crumbling down? Maybe it's a, a prayer of forgiveness that you need to pray about someone that you've built a wall up in your life. It could be any number of things. I'm not going to tell you what to pray for, but uh, enjoy the space that we so rarely give ourselves.